Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. John 3, 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet you do not receive, the, receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the, man, the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we make ourselves still and calm and quiet now, perhaps the most still and calm and quiet we've been all week. All sorts of voices begin to bubble to the surface. We realize that we've been chasing after different voices throughout the week, voices that tell us that we won't amount to anything unless we can achieve a certain amount of status or have a certain image that we present to the world, that we are uh, put together. We, We listen to these voices that tell us to look good at all costs, and if we can't look good, at least don't look bad. Voices that tell us that we're a failure, and the people about us, those, those people that told us that we we're not going to amount to anything, they were right. Uh, we come into this moment uh, hearing voices of overconfidence, thinking that we're overcompetent. Uh, we, uh, maybe we come into this moment just kind of asleep. We've lulled ourselves through moving from entertainment to entertainment, from addiction to addiction, and uh, we've just kind of muffled the voice in our, in our mind, and we can't hear much of anything. We enter into this moment believing and unbelieving. 
We enter into this moment excited and anticipating what you might do or say right now, and we come to this time fearful or depressed or angry or just wondering if we actually could ever believe these things. Maybe we remember a time when you seemed so close, when we did believe these things, and now you seem a million miles away, and we're wondering what happened to you or maybe what happened to us. But however we find ourselves in this very moment, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize, that on one hand, each of us is more of a mess than we want to admit, a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us and you know us in all our complexity and our contradictions, in the ways we have it all together, in the ways we feel like we're coming undone, and you know us and you love us. And your response is to give yourself to us in sacrificial self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray that you'd help us to see you know us and you love us this much, that you would fill us with your spirit, you would teach us by the power of your spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and changed and renewed. So would you do that now and send us out to be your very hands and feet wherever we go in your name, amen. So when my kids were in preschool, uh, they, Benjamin and Levi went to this co-op preschool. And in a co-op preschool, all the parents have a job to do. And for some reason, I told them that I could do fundraising. So the first year, I was the chair of the big auction. And that was I, I literally pulled two all-nighters in a row. I had not done that since college for various reasons. Um, that was a joke. Th so, um, but if you have to say it was a joke, it's not funny. That's like <laughs> comedy 101. So the second year, I said, I want an easier job. They said, fine, you can be the chair, uh, the, the president of the board of the school. And I said, oh, if that's easier, I'll do it. And part of my job as the president of the board was to know everybody that was there. I had to know all the kids, all the teachers, all the parents, and I knew them really well. I took my job seriously. That's just kind of part of my temperament and personality to make friends. And so I knew everybody. Until one day, my best friend, Dan Gannon, who didn't even have children at the time, so obviously didn't have children at the school, he says to me, do you realize that one of the kids' parents at the school is a really famous rock star? And I said, no, I know everybody at the school, and there's no really famous rock star at the school. He goes, yeah, well, Google so-and-so's name. And I'm not going to tell you so-and-so's name because I want you to know that I know famous people, but I'm not going to name drop. Um, <laughs> And so I Google so-and-so's name, and there's a picture of him on stage at a stadium with tens of thousands of people, right? There's pictures on his, uh, you know, Twitter page of him, like, in the cockpit of his private jet and all this. And I'm going, this is the guy that I walk into school with almost every day. This is the guy I talk about life and relationships with. This is the guy that invites me to his house late at night to play Dungeons and Dragons, okay? Except after all of that, he gets in a private jet and flies to Australia and rocks out in front of 20,000 people. I knew him. I knew him. But I had no idea that his exposure and his personality and his reach goes far beyond anything I could have possibly imagined in that moment. There was so much more to know about him. I think that's just a shadow, a dim way of seeing what Nicodemus is going through with Jesus today. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, I know you're a good teacher. I know you're good. I've been watching you. I've been listening to you. And Jesus says, you think I'm just a teacher. I'm actually your savior. Okay? We, this, is, this challenges everybody in this room right now. As we say, we come to him and we just want more teaching. We want more information. We want more data. And he says, you, your problem is not that you need more information. Your problem is that you're spiritually dead and you need to be born again. Okay? That's heavy. That is heavy and profound. 
Now, I realize, uh, first of all, the term born-again Christian is a redundant term. Uh, There are no Christians that have not been born again by the Spirit, according to Jesus. But don't freak out. Stay with me. Because I also realize the term born-again Christian, in our particular context, has all sorts of connotations. You might have run from a dysfunctional uh, community of people that called themselves born-again Christians, and because of the ways they viewed the world and they viewed you, it was very abusive and difficult. And so, just... Hold with me for a sec. Um, Maybe you're aware of different personalities on TV or in politics that call themselves born-again Christian, and that often means a particular political view. It means a particular temperament of shoving your faith down other people's throats and making them believe like you believe, and you're saying, if that's what it is, I want none of that. And listen, there's good news, because that is not what Jesus meant when he says you need to be born again. Okay, So I just want you to see that the term that Jesus has in mind, uh, it goes far beyond Uh, anything that we think that we're approaching him with. He says, you think you need information. You actually need a do-over. You need a new start. You need a new life. And I'm going to give it to you. This uh, idea of being a born-again Christian or follower of Jesus is at the center of all of the creeds and confessions of every Christian denomination, Catholic and Protestant. Um, This idea of being born again and made new is at the center of most of the the public proclamation of Christian leaders throughout history. I'll give you a few examples. This comes from Pastor Tim Keller in New York City. He says, what could turn St. Augustine from a codependent womanizer to a great doctor of the faith? What could turn Martin Luther from a neurotic to the bold preacher of the Reformation? What could change John Wesley from a scared priest to a street preacher that changed history? What could change John Newton from a slave trader to the author of some of the most loved hymns of Christendom? What could change C.S. Lewis from an atheist to one of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith in history? And they would all say, I've been born again. So the invitation today is to see the necessity of new birth, the extremity of the new birth, the means of the new birth, and the impact of the new birth. Okay, The extremity, the necessity, the means, and the impact. Okay, First, the necessity of new birth. Jesus says in verse 3, so Nicodemus comes to him and says, I know you're a teacher. Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Okay, You can't even see it. That's necessary, right? Nicodemus, let's just picture, let's do a character profile on this person that's coming to Jesus. This is someone who is religious but open-minded. He has values and roots, but he's flexible. He'd be a fun person at a cocktail party. He's in the leadership ruling class of his particular culture. He is someone that not only has wealth, but has status. You would look up to this person. He's someone who loves and obeys the scriptures. He's someone who's serious about God. He's someone who's not only wealthy, but connected. What I'm, tra- what I'm getting at is that if there is anybody that could come to Jesus and he would say, you know what, you're on a good path. Just keep doing what you're doing. It would be Nicodemus. But Jesus cuts him off and says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Why do you think he does this? I think it's to show how necessary it is. Martin Luther King, 
Jr., in a speech that he gave in, uh, in Atlanta in August 1967, he wrote, he said, one night a Pharisee came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down in the kind of isolated of, approach of what he shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, now you must stop drinking liquor if you're doing that excessively. He said something altogether different because Jesus realized something basic, that if a person will lie, they will steal, and if a person will steal, they will kill. So instead of just getting bogged down in one thing, Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said, in other words, your whole structure must be changed. Your whole structure must be changed. Why? Now, here's the hard truth. See, Christianity actually gives both love and truth at the same time. And you want both, okay? Love and encouragement and affirmation without truth will end up killing you, right? If I let my kids do whatever they want to do, they will die of poisoning by the end of the day, okay? Love without truth is no good for you. But hard truth without love will crush you. And Christianity gives you both. Actually, this is what they're teaching in, you know, in business school and in leadership academies now. That if you really want your employees to grow and to develop, you have to give them the right amount of challenge with the right amount of encouragement. Right? Love and truth have to come together. And here's what, what Christianity says. For example, the Apostle Paul writing to a young church in Ephesus says in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Don't you know... You were dead in your trespasses and sins, okay? Not just sick, not like mostly crushing it with just a little bit off needing to be repaired. You were spiritually dead. We were, so spiritually what you're producing is devoid of life. And now here's what, this means, this means two things. On one hand, there's good news. That nobody in here is bad enough to be disqualified, Nobody in here is bad enough to be disqualified. And so that means there's no room for you to beat yourself up. At the same time, it's hard to hear because it means no one in here is good enough to be qualified on your own merits. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you think I've come to teach you? I've come to save you. You think you need more teaching? You need an entirely new life the necessity of the new birth, which leads to the extremity of the new birth. Uh, you know, it's interesting that Jesus, when he wants to teach about what it's like to have this new start, this do-over, uh, he uses the analogy of birth. Now, I've been uh, at many births as a pastor, and I've been at three as a father, and I can tell you birth is extreme, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. In hindsight, it's funny. Um, I've gotten permission from Florence to tell these stories, by the way. When Benjamin was born, first child, we went to these birthing classes, and they'll teach you. Um, the question is often, how do I know when it's time to move from my home to the hospital? And there's a thing called the 511 rule, and they say, you know, when the contractions, have, uh, they take place every five minutes, and they last for one minute, and that's been taking place for one hour, that's when you know it's time to go to the hospital. And so I'm sitting there, you know, first child, dad, and I've got my notebook and my timer, and she's in contractions, and okay, and I'm plotting it all. I, I still have this notebook of just page after page, because this is going on for hours. And finally, 511 happens. It's time to go. And she says, I don't think so. And I said, I think it is. And we go there, and the doctor goes, 
Wh- whose idea was it to come to the hospital now? And I said, me? And he goes, you nailed it with the timing. High five. It's Florence is here in contractions. Um, I nailed it. We got there just because you don't want to go too early. You're going to be there for 24 hours. You don't want to go too late because that's a tragedy. Just right. Yes. So our second child, Levi, comes. And I'm like, I know this, 511, I'm good at this stuff. And so I get out the trusty notepad and the stopwatch, and I'm getting it. Nobody told me that the second child can come a lot faster than the first child. <laughs> so we are not at 511. We're not even in the vicinity of 511 yet. And I see this look on Florence's face, which includes eyes rolling back into her head, and I go, oh my gosh. I have not seen this face on my wife since last time she was pushing Benjamin out of her body. It is time to go to the hospital now. So I get her in the car. We rush off to the hospital. When the car door opens in the parking lot of the hospital, she screams so loudly that the doctor ran out with a wheelchair, and what ensued was like a scene from Grey's Anatomy, where they are just like opening up all the doors, clearing all the halls, overriding the elevators, so we go directly to where we need. From the moment we entered the hospital to the moment Levi was born was 17 minutes. <laughs> I, missed the, I missed that one. I got a third chance, and we did it okay later. But... um. But it was extreme. Whether it was perfectly timed or a complete rush, birth is extreme. It's life and death. It's messy. It's bloody. And Jesus says, that's kind of what it's like to come into the kingdom of God. It's heavy. If you're exploring Christianity, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I want you to note, Nicodemus comes and says, Jesus, are you a new teacher for me to learn from? And Jesus says, I've not come to merely teach you, but to redo you entirely, and it's going to be extreme. I have not come to eliminate you, but I've come to make you flourish. But you better believe that you will know that it's happening. C.S. Lewis later writes about this. He says, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. It's extreme. Do you hear what he's saying? God wants to do a supernatural work in your heart and in mine by his spirit, giving you his mind, his heart, his vision, his values, his very identity. So when you look in the mirror, you say, the truest thing about me is I've been made new. Now, how does that happen? What's the means of new birth? Let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about the birth analogy. In a medical, physical, human birth, who brings about the birth? The baby? Can a baby say, you know, I think I want to be born today. I think I'm going to do it. No. I heard a mother in the back say, the mom. (laughs) The mom does the birth. See, you don't go and get born. Birth happens to you. The baby doesn't do a thing. It's all the mother. The baby is brought into the world 
through the mother's labor. The baby is brought into the world through the mother's pain. The baby is brought into the world through the mother bearing all that weight for all those months. The baby is brought into the world because of someone else's suffering, because of someone else's burden. The baby is brought into the world because of someone else's labor. The baby is brought into the world because someone else bled. The baby is brought into the world through someone else's anguish. Don't you see how different this is? You cannot make yourself a Christian. You can't say, you know, I want these really good feelings, and so I'm going to pray to make them happen. I want this kind of power from God, so I'm going to pray so that God owes me, and he has to do the things that I want him to do. So what can you do? And I think the answer to that question, how do you become a Christian, is wrapped up in Jesus' cryptic message of verse 14 when he says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man, which is a code word for the Messiah, the one who would redeem all things, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's referring to this story that we get in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21, when the Israelites are wandering and they begin to curse God and, and, and say, God doesn't care about us, God doesn't love us, God doesn't provide for us. And all of these snakes, these serpents come through the desert and, and they bite all of the people and the people are infused with venom and they are dying. And they're convulsing, and they're feverish, and they're hallucinating, and they're dying. And it's into that God steps and says to Moses, make a serpent out of bronze, so all who look upon it will be healed, and that's what he does. First, you have to ask the question, why snakes? Why serpents? Why venomous snakes? And I think it's because God knew that the venom in our souls was far worse than the venom that was coursing through their veins. The venom of self-righteousness and self-absorption that dehumanizes and destroys us from within will erode us from within, and he rescues them. Jesus says, just as by looking at that serpent that was lifted up would rescue them from the venom in their veins, by looking at me as I am lifted up, it will rescue you from the venom that courses through your soul. And one day he would be lifted up on a cross, crucified on a hill outside of the city to take all the venom that's in our hearts upon himself. And as you look upon him on the cross, he says, see, I have done something about the venom that courses through this world. I have dealt a death blow to it once and for all. And three days later, he is lifted up again in glory in the resurrection, showing that the final word on this world is not that you should be dead or I should be dead in our transgressions and sins and lostness and wandering and thirst, but rather that we should be brought to new life. The final word on this world is actually you shall be filled. You shall be made new. You shall be born again. So how do you access that? It's at this point that I need to stress all you need to do is look to him. The program of becoming born again to know that you're truly beloved of God is not for those who still have enough strength left that you can crawl toward him or enough strength that you can run toward him and look good while doing it. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. 
for those who only look to him will be made new. See, we don't like those terms. We don't want to be told that we have need. We don't want to be told that we have nothing. We would rather stay uh, self-sufficient and hungry than let him feed us with eternal life. And he says, why don't you just try my way and see that I come to you even now. Look to me and trust me, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time. Now, let's consider uh, two things. First of all, this is uh, something that you can do right now as you choose to turn to him and to say, I've been trying it my way. I would like to try life his way. I've been trying a program of pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, and I realize I've been able to put together a few days of looking pretty good doing it, but ultimately I get tired and exhausted, and I'm coming undone, and I'm just kind of tired of living a facade sort of life that has two different faces. I would rather come to him in his fullness. If if it's the first time you're doing that today, this is a good day. Or if it's the thousandth time that you've done it. Because life is about continually reorienting ourselves back to the one who knows us and loves us and calls us his own. This is why we gather every Sunday. Every Sunday. We don't just gather once a year or come here one time and receive communion and be fed and nourished and then go out forever. We develop spiritual amnesia. We forget how loved we are. We come back to be reminded. We wander. We come back to recalibrate. We get hungry. We come back to be fed and nourished. And we do it together. So that's the first thing. Again and again being made new. But the second thing I want you to see is the impact of the new birth. See, John the Gospel writer, he's, he's a very um, intriguing dramatist as he writes because all we know is that Jesus ends this passage by saying, for God so loves the world that he gave his only son so whoever would believe in him would never die but have eternal life. Because God didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. And we don't know how Nicodemus responded. I wonder. We don't know how Nicodemus responded until John chapter 19. As the story goes on, Jesus eventually is crucified and he's abandoned by his friends. And in John 19, the day that Jesus was crucified, a group of people come to honor him, to bury him, to respect him, And Nicodemus is in that group of people. This is what John 19, verse 38 and following says. After Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. A hundred pounds of very expensive perfumes to anoint the dead body of Jesus. This is a lot of monies worth. This is why John tells you it was a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus, wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in that place where he was crucified and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid and so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The impact of new birth is that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus as a king, and he gives him a king's burial. Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus at night because he was afraid, now comes to Jesus in the day, out in the open. 
Nicodemus reorients his entire financial portfolio. Instead of holding it for himself, he pours himself out lavishly and generously and sacrificially. Nicodemus, who earlier on cares about public opinion, is now rather, would rather be associated with Christ publicly than to protect his own self-image and privacy. See, how do you know that you're being born again? Jesus says in verse 8, here's how you know. Your life becomes like the wind. You know that it's blowing. You know that there's a current. In fact, here's what he says directly. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So the first thing you know about a life that's been born again is that the wind of the Spirit, it rearranges things. It changes things. Some of you have become Christians, have become baptized, and not a single hair on your head has been moved. And you have to say, maybe you're missing out on some sort of a deeper life. What might the Spirit of God want to be rearranging in your life right now? In terms of who you spend time with, in terms of where you invest your finances, in terms of how you spend your time, in terms of the way you're pursuing your career or your vocation. Or it might, it, often it doesn't mean changing your career or your vocation. It means going about doing it in an entirely different way. Not going into your community or your career saying, what can I get out of this? Let me take the most from it. But saying, what can I give to this? To everybody with whom I come in contact. The wind rearranges things. But the other invitation is to catch the wind. Imagine after this service, we went down to San Diego Bay, and you saw a beautiful sailboat sitting there in the bay with the sails down on the mast. And it's a windy day. And you're seeing the trees moving in the wind, and the clouds are dancing by in the sky, but the boat is just bobbing on the crest of the wave. If you are the captain of the boat, what do you need to do to get that boat to move? Just put up the sail. It's not the boat's job to make the wind blow. It's the boat's job to catch the wind that's already blowing. Some of us go through our lives with our sail down, and we wonder why we're not moving. So what does it look like for you to catch the wind of the Spirit? This is an excellent season of 40 days before Easter, the season of Lent, where we can be more intentional about what it looks like to put the sail up. Whether it's through pursuing Him in scripture, pursuing him in prayer and meditation, choosing to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, choosing to be a part of a community where you can know and be known by others. What does it look like to put up your sail? Jesus says, the wind is of the spirit is among you and moving now. It's closer to you than the air you breathe. Your situation, on one hand, is far worse than you think, but good news, it's far better than you think. You need a new birth, and it's extreme, but behold, he has already done the labor on your behalf. You need healing, because we're dying, and behold, he has already taken the venom. So friends, we are invited today to receive that good news, to trust that he really loves us that much, and then to go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Gracious God, help us now to see that uh, we are like Nicodemus. We come to you expecting a good teacher, uh, maybe just a plus one or a plus five to an otherwise pretty good life. And uh, you say, look, I'm not here to just give you a little value add. I'm here to change you entirely. We will never let you change us, Jesus, until we can see that you are not only powerful, but that you're good. 
until we can see that you're not only useful, but you're beautiful. But once we see you are good and beautiful, why would we wait another second? And so we pray now that you would come with your spirit and do your life-transforming, life-giving, new birth work in our hearts and in our lives, in our church and in our community and in our world. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.